In an excerpt of Paul's letter to the people of Philippi that is packed full of good advice and encouragement, Paul lists off point after point of what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ, being one in mind, being humble towards others, looking out for one another's welfare. Above all, have the same mind as Christ Jesus. A reading from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, 1 through 13. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. A word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God. It is God who is at work in you. This week I was sure that God was at work in me to help me write a great sermon on how God is at work in our lives. I was sure of it when I selected this verse for my sermon last Sunday night. I was sure of it when I started gathering resources. I was sure of it when I went about my work visiting people during the week, letting the verses marinate in my brain for a couple of days. I was sure about it while doing laundry, making dinner, cleaning the house, running errands, and generally going about my days. I was just sure that while I was attending to these important events, God was meanwhile working on writing a great sermon for me. <laughs> but as I sat unsatisfied at the computer for hours Tuesday night, staring blankly off into space, uninspired, it became painfully clear to me that God had had more important things to do than to be at work in me writing my sermon. It turns out I needed to do the work myself. So my apologies from the get-go. I was hoping you'd be getting a sermon from God today, but it turns out you'll just be getting one from me instead. When writing a sermon, my biggest struggle when consulting commentaries, which are the scholars' writings on the text, is that they're very academic. 
They're a little too dry for my taste, like a Cabernet Sauvignon versus a Moscato. These commentaries want to tell me that this letter was written to the people of Philippi who Paul knew and loved, and that there was apparently struggle and division within their church. These commentaries want to tell me that this section of the letter that we read just now, in particular verses 5 through 11, is known as the Christ Hymn, and that these words may have been part of a song sung by the early Christians or part of an early church creed or other form of writing such as a responsive reading that Paul might have been familiar with before he wrote the text and borrowed for this letter. They want to tell me that the elites in Philippi were Roman and the city was a Roman colony often called Little Rome. I read all of these sayings and although they're important in fleshing out the historical background of the text, which I find fascinating and important, I'm left feeling uninspired because what I want are stories. Stories about people, stories about feelings, stories about connections, because for me, a good story brings dead things alive. The line that stands out to me among all of these notable and beautiful lines in this text is, it is God who is at work in you. One of the most encouraging thoughts to me as I go along this faith journey is that God is not done with me yet. And whoa, Nellie, is that a good thing? These words are an encouragement that I am a work in progress and that hopefully the person I am tomorrow is just a little bit better than the person I am today because it is God who is at work in me. In Paul's letter, he reminds them that it is not outside forces, the powers that be, or personal inclinations or desires that work upon the people for good. Rather, it is God, the God who made us, called us good, gave us a name, beloved child, and journeys with us through the days and nights of our lives. It was something the Philippians needed to hear, and it's an important reminder to us as well, because we get disheartened sometimes on this faith journey, don't we? It puts into an image something we can all connect with, and I'm thinking of an image of what we experience when we're driving this time of year, or really, to be honest, any time of year in Nebraska. Let's imagine each one of our hearts as a construction zone. And God has set up those lovely orange cones inside of our hearts and slowed down the speed limit for us so that we can journey safely through the areas where God is at work. For it is God who is at work in you, not anything else, God. J. Lee Grady writes, on the journey to spiritual maturity, we must learn to welcome God's perpetual construction crew. If we really want to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, we must welcome all the heavy equipment he sends into our lives. Do you hear the noise? In your life and mine, I hear the sound of bulldozers, jackhammers, and pavers at work. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is a process that begins when we invite Christ to take residence in our hearts. It does not end until we breathe our last. We tend to think of the Holy Spirit as being gentle, but sometimes he brings the refining fire of holiness to burn out our impurities. 
Sometimes the Holy Spirit orchestrates uncomfortable circumstances to squeeze us, shake us, mold us, and shape us. And sometimes we complain about the interruptions, delays, detours, and upheavals that the Holy Spirit brings into our lives for our good. This Holy Comforter bulldozes into our lives to excavate, overhaul, and transform. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives like God's foreman. He clears out the debris, hauls off the rubbish, lays the new foundations, rehangs the doors, reconstructs the gates, and rebuilds the broken walls of our lives. Will you allow him to inspect your attitudes, your motives, your thoughts, your unsurrendered will and your addictions and all other areas where you need transformation? Will you be patient as he sets up his orange cones in your life? Let him finish the good work he began in you. We need to remember that Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison in Rome. This was the last of his four prison epistles. He'd previously written letters to communities in Ephesus, Colossae, and to his friend and fellow laborer Philemon. And he knew that there was a chance that at any moment he would die for his faith in and total commitment to Jesus Christ. So in many ways, this was a farewell letter to the friends he made. And yet he writes of joy. In fact, joy is one of the key words in this letter. Paul uses the word joy or rejoice 16 times in this short letter. He had the joy of knowing that he was a man under reconstruction and that God was working in his life to bring good out of brokenness. And that was reason for him to rejoice. But above all else, the letter to the Philippians is a letter of encouragement, a letter of gentle nudging to continue to move forward in the work of Christ, even in the face of troubles. It is in this letter that Paul encourages us with some of our favorite scriptures. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. And also, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We all have areas in which we would like to improve. I'd like to be a better mom a better partner for my husband, a better pastor, a better cook. I know my mom's DNA is in me somewhere, so how come cooking such a challenge? I'd like to speak at least five languages, become a wizard at playing the bagpipes, and raise miniature donkeys. And you all have your own lists. But the truth might just be that God might need me to be better in a way that is different from how I would like to be better. Maybe God needs me to be better at other things, and I need to be okay with that. I need to be okay with accepting that mediocrity is maybe all I'm going to get in those other areas, and that that's good enough for what God needs me for. When I was 15 and a sophomore in high school, I had a life-changing experience with a teacher. I had a wonderful man for my creative writing class, Mr. Forsman. And he was one of the first to teach me to understand the power and beauty of the written language. He taught us the idea of the golden thread, which was the most important sentence in a paragraph or story. 
the one with a golden nugget of treasure in it. And he taught us the importance of mining and refining our writing. To mine and refine meant to keep working at it, to dig deeper, clear away the unessential messiness, and find the golden nugget of an idea that was waiting to be revealed. When, he'd turn in, when we would turn in our stories and they needed a little more work, he would gently and lovingly write, why don't you mine and refine on the top of the paper an encouragement to just keep going because something beautiful was about to be exposed. And that's what God is doing with each one of us. God is mining and refining us, working on us so we can become the best possible version of ourselves, the one create, God created us to be. God is clearing away the messy non-essentials so as to reveal our own golden nuggets, the treasure within each one of us. But we're not golden nuggets alone. We live within a community, and Paul was very con concerned about the faith community in Philippi. Thus, one of the most important points of this letter, he repeated focus on community unity. Listen to all these references in just the first few verses of what I read today. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition, but look to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Clearly, unity was of incredible importance to Paul because he knew that without unity, the community would be destroyed. But Paul wasn't telling the Philippians they had to be unified in everything in their beliefs, their political affiliations, their hobbies, their favorite curling team, that's a sport, friends, my, my cousin plays it, or anything else that humans use to divide ourselves from one another. Rather, they had to be united in Christ. Their belief in Christ was their common denominator. Everything else could take a back seat. Only Christ mattered, Christ alone. And the same is true of us today. We who make up 21st century churches are real people who sometimes have widely varying beliefs about many different topics. Within the same denomination, even within the same local church, there are wildly divergent views on God, who God is, where God came from, what God does, what God doesn't do, why God doesn't do it, and so on. That's one of the things that makes Christ's church the beautifully diverse living organism that it is, these different views. But it also makes things really hard and messy at times. Since we are united in Christ, when we go out from these walls, we take with us the name of Christ, because we're Christians after all, right? Do our lives reflect the same mind that was in Jesus Christ? Are we looking to the interests of others rather than our own interests, like Paul writes? Are humility and servanthood evident among us? In other words, do our lives reflect Jesus' life? Interestingly, if you write the words, why are Christians so, in the Google search engine field, do you know what words come up? 
Now, if you haven't done this before, just so you know, you can begin to type a sentence into the search field, and the remainder of the sentence will pop up. It will autofill. In other words, it will fill in the rest of the sentence using words that others have searched for before you, and the most searched for words will pop up first. Here are the words most commonly searched for with this question, why are Christians so blank? Why are Christians so hypocritical? Why are Christians so judgmental? Why are Christians so mean? Why are Christians so ignorant? Why are Christians so rude? Why are Christians so annoying? I like that last one. <laughs> so a sobering question for you and me today is this. As we bear Christ's name into the world, what words are people going to use to describe us? I think we should aim to live our lives in a manner that will cause these words to pop up. Why are Christians so generous? Why are Christians so kind? Why are Christians so open-minded? Why are Christians so knowledgeable? Are we willing to confess wholeheartedly that we are not perfect, but that God is not finished with us yet? Are we willing to place out the orange cones and the work in progress signs for all to see? Are we willing to confess that yes, we fall short, but that God is good and that God is working a good thing through us if we will only step out of the way and let God work? Do not be disheartened because God is not finished with you yet and never will be, not even when we take our last breath. It seems that I say those words, God is not finished with us yet a lot at my work with hospice. It's often at the side of a bed where a patient is preparing to depart this world and enter into the next that a loved one will reminisce. They will share stories of the, of the loved one's life, stories of what they did, stories of who they were, who they will continue to be to their loved ones long after they are no longer physically present with them. Occasionally, a patient's loved one will turn to me with a worried look in their eye and say, my dad didn't have any faith. And the unspoken words are this, what's going to happen to him? With the knowledge of my own orange construction cones in my heart, I can confidently say to them, God is not done with him yet. God is still working in his life to bring goodness and grace. God doesn't ever give up on us. In a book entitled, If Grace is True, written by Philip Goley and James Mulholland, the authors write, fortunately, God looks for the slightest yielding, the smallest opening to make his love known. God doesn't stand with his back turned until we ask for him. God doesn't hide and expect us to seek him. God doesn't keep his distance and await our call. God said, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here I am, here I am. That's from Isaiah 65. They continue, what God did for the children of Israel, God does for all. God stands at the door and knocks. And if we don't answer, God looks for an open window. So I say, not even after our last breath, 
God is not done with us yet because of grace. Likewise, we need to never be done with God. We need to be like Christ, and we need to be Christ-like. It feels impossible, doesn't it? Because if you're anything like me, you are sometimes difficult, dreadful, opinionated, all the wonderfully horrible emotions that cause us to be beautifully messy people. But because it is God who is at work in you, the seemingly impossible has become possible. Because it is God who is at work in you, the hopeless has turned into hope. Live into this hope by having the same mind as Jesus, by having humility, placing one another above ourselves, and having each other's interests at heart. And thanks be to God for orange construction cones and the promises of knowing that we do not go about this work alone and that God is not done with us yet. No, never done with us. Thanks be to God. Amen. <laughs>